All right, good morning. Welcome to Grace. I know that was a little different than we usually do, but if you guys will stand up, uh, we're going to sing together. I'm going to pray, and then we will sing and worship our God. So let's let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for this morning. Lord, we just come to worship you. Lord, I pray that you will um, just focus our, our thoughts and our, um, God, our, our desires on you, that you will be lifted up in the words that we say, God, and the things that um, are on our hearts. Lord, we pray that You'll help us to sing in thankfulness and gratitude for what you have done and who you are. That's your name, I pray. All right, let's sing out together. Love, I'll see you in the 
say, and this is the message we have heard from him, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let us pray. Father God, good morning. Indeed, it is great to be here today, to be in the house of the Lord, to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to know that He is the one who made us and created us and keeps us alive and well today. But sometimes we don't feel so alive and we don't feel so well. And sometimes it is because of sin in the greater sense of the world and disease and infirmity, but sometimes it's because of sin in our own heart and how we contribute to our own oh, ill will or ill feelings. Father, sometimes we do things that we know we should not do, say things we know we should not say, hurt people. And sometimes we do not do the things that we know we should be doing for ourselves, for those around us, for those we love. And for all this, we ask for your forgiveness because your word tells us that if we confess our sins, that you, O Lord, are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's what we do now. We confess to you our sinfulness as a people, as a land, and as an individual. 
And Father, we know that through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven. So now we pray that you would help us to draw near to you because we know that you will draw near to us and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth throughout the rest of this morning, throughout the rest of our day, the rest of our lives, Father. Let us be close to you and to grow in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, we pray that our lives will sing that song. God, that you will teach us to sing louder and stronger with our lips and with our actions, God. We pray that you will help us to dwell upon your word, God. To set our hearts on on pleasing you, God. Loving you and loving others, God. Help us to um, hear from your word now, God. We pray that you will change us and change this world through your truth. It's your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Always good to see you. I don't get to see you often because I'm, I'm normally in the first service and in Sunday school the second hour. Uh, so if you are newer and, and don't know me, my name is, is Stephen Watson. Uh, I came here about two and a half years ago to, to work with the youth uh, on a part-time basis. Uh, and just this past June, I started working here full-time. And I, I think my official title is... Uh, Assistant pastor of, of youth and everything else. Uh, and so it used to be whenever I'd come and I, I, I'd preach to you, I'd always give like the youth this shameless plug. Uh, but now I have all these other things to plug. So bear with me. i got about three plugs I want to make. The first is for the youth. If you look in your bulletin, there are two youth events uh, that are coming up in July. Uh, so if you are in seventh grade or going into seventh grade, this is about you uh, and your families. So one is uh, we are going to Six Flags. Lord help us. It's like they, they taught me into this in lock-ins. I don't know why I do them. But uh, actually, I haven't done a lock-in yet. But uh, the other thing is much closer. Uh, it's tomorrow night. In the middle part of your bulletin, uh, there's a skate and pizza night. Uh, what we do once a year is we have an event uh, for people who are new to the youth ministry. So if you're a junior higher coming into the youth ministry or uh, if you're new to the church, what we like to do is we like to invite you and your family. So your parents, your little brothers, older brothers, sisters. We just like to invite you all to come to this, uh, this meal. We're going to be meeting at Pizza Hut. and I can tell you about our youth ministry, uh, tell you about what makes us tick. You can ask me questions. Uh, and we just kind of have a good time. And so that's for new people. Uh, people who have not uh, kind of been in the youth ministry yet. And then after that, uh, all the youth are invited to go to the, the skate, uh, skating rink there in Harker Heights. Um, and that is, it's a family thing. So like I said, bring your parents, bring your younger siblings. In fact, even if you don't have a family here or don't have kids, you're still welcome to come. Uh, join, us, join us for skating on that day. Uh, second, two other things I want to plug it's somewhat related. I know oftentimes when you come to church, it's hard to get plugged in. It's hard to meet people. It's hard to make this place feel like home. Uh, and I, I will tell you the truth. It will never feel like home until you treat it like home. And, and when you're at home, you work. Uh, you wash dishes. You mow the yard. You, you, you live there. And so I encourage you that if you've been coming to Grace for a while and you just don't feel at home yet, uh, then get plugged in. Start working. Start serving. Uh, two, in, two places in particular I'd like to recommend. Uh, one is the children's ministry. Right now, uh, we have children's Sunday school class going on in the, our back building. And we've just recently changed curriculum, changed a format. Uh, it's a great time. We are still in need of some people to serve there. So if you're like, man, I love to do crafts. 
we'll make you a craft assistant. She's like, I love memory verse. We'll make you a memory verse assistant. Uh, it's a kind of a low demand, high return job uh, where you just have to be there and love on the kids and fill in every now and again. But you get a great, great reward. The other place I'd recommend you serve to make this place feel like home uh, is the nursery. You always have to watch kids when you're at home uh, if, if you have them. And so if you use a nursery or even if you don't use a nursery, you just want to make this church your home and feel apart and meet people and, and do life together uh, with us, it's a great place to plug in. We only ask people to serve once a month in the same room with people that they know so you can develop uh, deeper relationships with those people. Uh, Jesus always says it's better to give uh, than receive, so we're just trying to help you give and be blessed by it. Uh, Dave will be back next week, don't fear. Uh, until then, I'll be filling in for him. And he, he asked me to, to preach on marriage. And I know whenever anyone preaches on marriage, if the first question you want to ask is, how old is this guy preaching to me about marriage? Because no one wants to hear a sermon about marriage from a guy who's still tanned from his honeymoon. Uh, but I, I've been married for five years to my wife. Uh, she's, she's a lovely wife and a, a great help. Uh, and we have one beautiful little almost 11-month-old daughter. Uh, my credentials go further than that, though, to talk to you about marriage. Uh, and that's that I've been around great marriages all my life. My parents, uh, this November, will have been married 38 years. And their parents before them, before uh, their, their spouses died, one, my mother's parents were married for 49 years, almost 50, and my father's parents were married for 50 years. We have quite a large immediate family. I have two older brothers and cousins and aunts and uncles. And, and there's no divorce in there, uh, which is an absolutely amazing gift from God that he's given us. And so I've been raised where I could watch these marriages take place. Uh, but all that beside, there is one credential that, that I think is above all others. It, and it's this, this right here, the Bible, God's word. Even if I weren't married, even if my parents and my grandparents and, and everyone were divorced, the Bible expresses very clearly God's plan for marriage. And one of the things that we do uh, over in the children's ministry and oftentimes when we're teaching our youth to do backyard Bible clubs is whenever they open up the Bible to tell a Bible story, they'll say, this, this is God's word. And whatever is in here is what God says. And to, to disbelieve God's word is to disbelieve God. And, and, and to, to break God's word is to sin against God. And so what is in here is true. And the Bible makes it very clear uh, God's stance and his opinion on marriage. And we are in desperate need of, of hearing what God's word says about marriage. Just this week I was, I was doing some reading up on different articles to prepare for today. And I came across this article in Newsweek magazine, which is a pretty popular magazine, a news, news magazine. And there's an article in there by two young women, uh, one in her late 20s, one in her early 30s, uh, both professional, both educated, both, both single. And they wrote an article, uh, and its title was, I Don't. I Don't, The Case Against Marriage 
And this is how they opened up their article. Once upon a time, marriage made sense. It was how women ensured their financial security, got the fathers of their children to stick around, and gained access to a host of legal rights. From a legal and practical standpoint, marriage is no longer necessary. They've been in their article trying to build their case against marriage. And they said marriage is no longer practical because the divorce rate in America is higher than any of that in the Western world. They said in their article that 60% of men and 50% of women was sometime in their marriage commit adultery against their spouse. They said that marriage is no longer practical and no longer good because the number of people cohabitating or living together has increased 1,000% in the last 40 years. And they said marriage is no longer necessary nor practical because 41% of the births in America were born to unmarried, unwed mothers. And this was their case. This is the state of marriage in our country. And so their reaction to marriage in America today was to throw out the institution and say, see, marriage is not good. It's best to be single your whole life and just live together and switch partners every four or five years. That's how we were made. That's what they said. But when we go to the Bible, when we go to God's word, it shows us something very different. And it's true. Marriage in America is suffering. But the answer is not to throw out marriage. The answer is not to just cohabitate. The answer is not to just abandon and jump ship off of marriage. But the answer is to go back to what God intended marriage to be. The answer is to rid our lives of sin and submit to a holy God who can mend our broken marriages. So what we want to do today is, is go to the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have Pew Bibles. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2 is, I think, found on page 2. Um, and we want to read about the first marriage. The marriage that took place in the Garden of Eden at the point of creation. To find out what God desires of us in our marriages. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. A little side note. Uh, in the Hebrew world and, and mindset, to name something it is to have headship or to have authority over it. Uh, so, so back in verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep 
to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for this institution of marriage which you have ordained and you have given to us. Father, we confess that we live in a world that oftentimes has no respect for you, no respect for your world, for your word. And Lord, sometimes with all the messages flying at us, sometimes we get false ideas about what is right and what you want. But Heavenly Father, I pray that as we read your word, you will strip away all the false notions and false ideas and pride, Lord, that we might be holding on to. And may we humbly accept your plan, your purpose for marriage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the scene, the setting that we have in Genesis chapter 2 is creation. And in creation, God uh, began with the heavens and the earth and then kind of worked his way down to more detail. And after he created everything, God gave this pronouncement. He said, it is good. He created the sky. He said, it is good. He created light and darkness and it's good. He created earth and sea and it's good. He created plants and animals and it's good. And there's only one thing that God created and he looked at it and he said, it is not good. And that was man. Now, ladies, I don't want you elbowing the guy next to you and say, see, you're not good. That, that's not what we want. What this tells us is that when God created man, God was not finished with him. Man in and of himself and humanity in and of itself was not complete when there was just men. But what completed the man was the helper, was the woman, was Eve. And when I read this passage, the first thing that just jumps out at me is that man is not complete by himself. And that God gave us marriage to complete people. I know if you, if you talk to my wife, uh, we were actually talking about this yesterday. And, and I said, Lindsay, uh, how do you complete me? How, how, how are you my helper? What, what, what have you added to my weakness with your strength? And she said, well, well Stephen, I, I brought you civilization. Uh, <laughs> and, and then she went on to explain. She's like, you know, before we were married, about three times a week, you ate beans and rice. Uh, about three or four times a week, you'd fall asleep on the couch watching TV. And your 
dream, your desire, was to live out in the middle of nowhere where you could avoid people and you could live in a cabin. She's like, Stephen, if I hadn't married you, you'd have been the Unabomber. Uh, and, and she's right. Every now and again, I'll still drive by the Lowe's parking lot. And they have those giant sheds. And I'm like, ah, oh, I could have lived in one of those. And there's still that longing there. But what I have now is, is much better. But, but in and of and by myself, I was incomplete. And God gave me my wife to complete me. And I know oftentimes people hear that and their first objection is they say, well, well, what about me? I'm single and I don't want to get married. Or you say, what about me? I'm, I'm, I'm single and, and I want to be married. I just haven't found that other person yet. Scripture does talk about you. And it talks about you in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In your pew Bibles, that's uh, page 956. And this is what it says about singleness. And this is the only instance, and this is the only case where and why and how it is okay and fine to be single. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 32. The Apostle Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and the interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now jump down to verse 38. So he who marries his betrothed does well, and who refrains from marriage will do even better. So it's kind of a, a, a very paradoxical that in this sermon on, on, on marriage, I'm saying marriage completes you, and then on the other hand, it's like, fine to be married, or it's fine to be single. And, and this is how those two things really go together. In our culture, in our society, singleness, just like that article I read earlier, is being promoted. And people in our culture, in our society, are saying, don't get married. Stay single. If you stay single, you can focus on your career. If you stay single, you can travel the world and take vacations whenever you want to, your job permitting. Stay single and you don't have to change. You can remain who you are. Stay single and your spouse won't try to shackle you and, and form you into this, this, this mold. But when we read scripture, this is not the reason to stay single. This is not how we are supposed to behave when we are single. Paul gives us one reason, one very good reason to be single. It's this. When we are single, we can give our undivided attention to God and His ministry. So if you are single, that is your focus. That is your purpose. To be focused on the gospel of God, the kingdom of heaven, and His ministry and His gospel. 
And if you're single and you want to get married, you're thinking, oh, I just want to get married. That's fine. That's good. That's a godly desire. But you don't find your spouse going to a bar. You don't find your spouse, well, sometimes you find them just walking down the street, but that doesn't happen often. You You find your spouse in the midst of ministry. What better way to find the person God has for you than to be in His body, the church, serving the needs of the people and furthering His kingdom. When you find somebody in that place and in that instance, you automatically know that you have something, the most foundational issues in your life in common. So if you are single and you want to get married, I encourage you, serve in the church. Pour yourself out into the church. Find others who are doing the same. And if you are single and you don't want to get married, Paul says that you are doing even better. But you are single for His glory and for His kingdom. You are completed by being married to Christ, in essence. But for the rest of us who are married, we have to ask ourselves a question, how is it that we complete one another? And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, in that God has given us different roles. God has given us different roles. Uh, and, And once again, our culture lies to this in this instance. Our culture says there is no difference between man and woman. There is no difference between male and female. I I had a friend the other day who has about, I don't know, a 14-month-old. And she was reading this parenting magazine that she got for free in the mail. And she came across this article on your, your children and their playing. And this is what it said. It said, your son might naturally be drawn to, to trucks and action figures. But make sure you force him to play with dolls and, and other things as well. It, it, it's almost this, really? You don't have to teach a boy to be a boy. You don't have to teach a girl to be a girl. Because nature calls forth and defines those people as they were created. And God has created us differently. And it is wrong. It is against nature. It is against creation. It is against God to try to force a young man to be feminine. It's wrong. And it is, a, it is wrong to try to take a young girl and make her masculine against how God has created us. Parents, teach your young men, teach your young boys to be men. Parents, teach your young girls how to be ladies. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good and it's right. But God has given us different roles. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2. For the man... When we read Genesis chapter 2, and this is something our culture really doesn't like, God called the man to be in a position of authority, and God called the man to be in a position of responsibility. Throughout the Bible, when you read the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, it defines this role of authority and responsibility as headship. You are the head of the household. That's the man's responsibility. 
If there is an issue in the family and the husband and her wife are talking it over and there's just indecision, it is the man's responsibility to use his authority to make the final decision. It is a man's responsibility to provide for, to protect, to, to lead spiritually and otherwise his family. And men fail in this responsibility. They sin in this responsibility by, being, by doing two different things. On one instance, men fail in this responsibility by being passive. They, they don't take up their authority. Oh, just whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to live my life and, you know, it'll all work out in the end. Or they fail on their responsibility to provide, to protect their families. And they are more concerned with their own entertainment. Whether that be having help us video games as a man. Whether that be your career. Whether that be other hobbies. And we're so consumed with what brings us pleasure that we are passive in the role that God has given us. The other way that we sin is sometimes we can be too dominant, too domineering, and that we can rule our household with a heavy fist. And I think this can be hard, especially in this town where we're surrounded by military, where people are taught to sometimes be heavy-handed. Aggression is sometimes encouraged. You need it in battle. You need it in war. And it's hard sometimes to take off that hat and come into your homes and be gentle and be loving to your family. The Bible tells us that men, husbands, are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. That means you are not domineering in your household. It means that you give selflessly to your family, that you look after them, that you protect them, that you provide for them. And you do not ever raise your hand against them. Never should you ever raise your hand against your wife. I don't care how much anger or rage or impatience that exists in you. <laughs> don't do it. Half tempted to get a group of men to come to your house if you do. Because you don't. Raise your hand against your wife. The picture of marriage is the picture of Christ in the church. And Christ never rose his hand against the church to strike her down. But drew it close. Loved it. Women likewise have their role in the family. And this, is, I think, is even more uh, controversial today. But whenever God looked at Adam, he saw that Adam was alone. God said, Adam's not complete, and it's not good that he's alone. He said, I must create for Adam a helper. Now, when I say helper, this does not mean that it's a lesser role. 
When I say helper, this does not mean it is a weak role. When I say helper, it doesn't mean that man has more standing before God and more worth and value before God. That's not what I mean. Man and woman are equal before God. And this is what it means by helper. I read this in my my ESV study Bible. I I recommend that source. Uh, This is what it means by helper. A helper is one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the one to be helped. Let me read that again. The helper is one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the one to be helped. If you are a woman and a wife, then it is your job and your duty before God to supply strength where your husband lacks strength. That's your job. And this is not a weak role, role to play. When we look at that word helper in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, that word helper is only used 19 times in the Old Testament. One of them here in Genesis chapter 2. So it's used 18 times otherwise. 16 of those 19 times when that word helper is used, it's in reference to God. Coming to the help or coming to the aid of a patriarch or a king. That is no weak role. That is nothing to look down upon. That is nothing to to, to take lightly. This is nothing to be ashamed of. Be thankful for and fulfill that role. Women sometimes in this by one being passive and seeing the weaknesses in their husband and not coming alongside of them to help them. So they sin just like men do by being passive. They also sin just like men do by being too domineering. And they try to take the headship themselves. They try to say, alright, uh, if you're not going to get up and lead, I am. I'm going to make the decisions. I'm going to protect. I am going to provide. When that's not their role. And we, even when we go to the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve falling because they both sinned in their marriage. When the serpent comes to Eve, when Satan comes to Eve and says, Eve, I want you to take of this fruit and you will be like God. She is saying, Eve, I want you to provide by giving this apple to your husband. I want you to take authority by making this decision. Eve sinned in the garden by making herself the head of that family. Adam did the same thing. He sinned by being passive. The whole time, Adam was sitting there, watching the serpent come to Eve and whispering lies into his ear. And did he get up and protect her by crushing the head of the serpent? No. He just passively sat by, let Eve fall, and then he fell himself. God has given us roles to live in, to operate in. Though our culture tells us to throw those old roles out, become a a new family, enlightened family, what we've seen over the past 40 years 
of the fall of marriage is not a result of people living out a biblical marriage, but of people rebelling against it. I'm not saying all marriages back then were perfect. I'm not saying we need to turn the clock back 40 years. I'm saying we need to go back to Scripture and model our lives after what we see there. The second thing I, I see in this passage is not only that God gave us marriage to complete one another, but that God made marriage a covenant between a man and a woman. And what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is, is the first wedding. Now, it was a garden wedding. It was an outdoors wedding. They were out in the Garden of Eden. And, and since we know that the Bible is true and, and good and it does not lie, uh, I predict that this outdoors wedding was probably in the spring, fall, or winter uh, because godly people don't have outside weddings in the summer. It's hot. Uh, just playing. Especially for us ministers. Please, please just take note of us because we have to wear like either a tux or a dark suit. And in the summer, that's just, just painful. Don't, don't do that to us. Don't do that to your guests. Uh, outdoors is great in the winter. Uh, but we see this wedding take place in the garden. And God the Father takes his daughter Eve, whom he bore, whom he created. And while Adam is waiting, God walks Eve and gives his daughter away to this young man who is to be her husband. And Adam takes her and then speaks this vow over her. He said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You say, well, that's, that's a weird vow. I don't see any guys jotting that down. But this, this is what he was saying. He was saying, this woman is a part of me. This woman is going to be my, my, my relation, my kin, my relative. We are going to become close. That's what Adam was saying. That she is now me and we are now one. That was his vow. And then they took a covenant in verse 24 to leave their father and mother and to hold fast to one another. That word hold fast means to be faithful to one another. To never leave each other. To never forsake each other. To never, to never betray one another. And then this covenant, this wedding ceremony is sealed by the wedding night. They shall become one flesh. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is an agreement. A covenant is a treaty between people. And in the instance of a marriage, this treaty, this covenant is ratified by that wedding night. And I will never understand while people will choose to forego marriage, to skip marriage, and say, you know what, I'm just going to live with somebody. Why would you make yourself so vulnerable, so, so naked before somebody? 
without knowing that they are going to be there tomorrow? Why would you want to be with somebody who says, by their actions and by their words, I am not going to commit to you? Because my career, my job might take me away. Because, who knows, you might get sick. Then I wouldn't want to be stuck with someone who's sick. I don't want to commit to you because I never know when someone else might walk by and I might like them better. And then I'd be stuck with you and I couldn't go after them. I'm not going to commit to you. Why would you do that? Why would you even date somebody who says, you know what? I don't believe in marriage. They're saying, I am not willing to commit to you. I am not willing to make you my own. I am not willing to hold fast and be faithful to you. Ladies and gentlemen, save yourself for someone who is willing to make that commitment to you. Do not give yourself away. Do not make mistakes that are irreversible. But save yourself to a point where when you do come to your wedding, you can come where the only luggage you have is for your honeymoon. Don't, don't waste that on someone who's not willing to commit to you. Sorry about that. Uh, I, I'll never under... Well, every now and again, the, the youth will get me started talking about, about dating. And, and after they do, they're always like, oh no, Steve's talking about dating again. But it is something I'm, I'm passionate about. It's something that, that I'm firm about. And parents, when it comes to your junior high, your 12-year-old, your 13-year-old, why in the world would you put them in a situation to where they might lose their innocence? Why would you do that? And this is not, this is not law. It's not like Jesus stood on the Sermon on the Mount and said, Thou shalt not let your junior higher date. So it's not like I can be legalistic about this. I just wanted to appeal to your logic, to your reason. To, to, your, to your duty as parents. When, I don't care how good and how, how righteous your 12-year-old or your 13-year-old is, sin is a deadly foe who wants nothing more than to destroy that which is most precious to you. And in this instance, it's no respecter of age. And kind of the line that I take with, with, with my students is that you don't start dating until you're ready for a commitment. You don't start dating until you're ready for commitment because whenever you're in a dating relationship, whether junior high or high school, it doesn't matter. Those hormones are going. It doesn't matter. You're always, even if you have boundaries, you are going to be pushing those boundaries back further and further and further. And that intimacy, 
that we treat so lightly and that we give away so freely was designed by God to be something so sweet and so precious that a man and woman can give to one another as a sign of their unyielding commitment to one another. And I know even as I say this that some hearts might be breaking because you're like, I've messed up. I've given it away. Know this. Our God is good. Our God is merciful. And though you cannot make it like it has never happened because it is with you always. Because of the grace of our God, He does not hold it against you. If you confess your sins, any sin, our God is faithful, our God is just to forgive us of our sins. So my encouragement for you adults is to be careful. My encouragement to you to parents is, is to protect that which is most precious to you. <laughs> Some people say, and it's one of the arguments I hear, and then I'll, then I'll start preaching my sermon again. It's one of the arguments that I hear all the time is, well, how can I know who I want to find and what I like in a person unless I date all of them? And I said, well, it's simple. You know the type of man or woman you want to marry. You want to marry a godly one. That's what you want. That is your criteria. Someone who shares your faith. When you have one God and one baptism and one faith and one spirit that unites you, that's what you want. I don't care if they stood in line at the new Star Wars movie dressed like Chewbacca. If they're godly, they're a good one. You can get over all that other stuff. You can, you can live with it. That's your criteria. Not how funny they are or how long and flowing their hair is. Because believe me, from experience, it doesn't last. It falls out. Sometimes earlier than you want it to. So be careful when you and for those of you who are in a marriage and you say, you know what? I believe in God and I believe in marriage, but I think I might have married the wrong person. And I think I need to leave them so I can go and be with the one that God has me with. Let me say this to you straight up. The person you married is the person God have you be with. If you are feeling, I don't care if you feel it whenever you're praying to God, if you feel that you married the wrong person and you need to leave them, God will never tell you to divorce your spouse. He says it in Malachi. He says, I hate divorce. Divorce. 
He hates it. It's a sin against him. It's a sin against how he created us. And he would have you be with the one whom you loved and made a commitment to and made a vow to. And if your spouse is not a believer, then you are to love them patiently and pray for them to come to Christ. But you are with the one whom God have you be with. This covenant that we're talking about, what is it a covenant of? It is a covenant of welfare. It says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Some people read that and they look to their wife and say, See, honey, we're not supposed to live close to our parents. We need to move away. Far away. Another state. Let's join the army. We can go away. That's, that's not what it's saying. Uh, what, what Scripture is saying is this. Uh, in the Jewish culture, when a young man got married, they didn't leave their parents for a far-off town because they were next in line to take over that role of authority in that family. When the father and mother died, that young man would become the head of that house. Uh, he would inherit the, their father's possessions, their flocks, their herds, their lands. They would inherit that. And they were expected to be there by their parents to take care of that. Now, uh, so he's saying something different here in verse 24. And this is what I think he's saying. He's saying this. When you become married, your priorities in life shift their focus. As a young man, my responsibility, when I was single, my responsibility, my focus was to that of my family. That I would honor, respect my parents. And... They were, they were my family. But the scripture is also saying that once you make this covenant of marriage, that your focus changes. And that your focus is no longer your, your family, like your mother and your father and brothers, but your focus now becomes your wife. And yes, you still honor your parents. And it's wise to continue to obey them. But you, you honor your wife. And your wife or your husband becomes your main focus. And so if an issue came down and your parents were all about this one issue and you need to do this, you need to do this. And your spouse is like, this is better for us. And it becomes an issue between your parents and your spouse. Scripture tells us that you go with your spouse. That is the new center of your family life. And it's this covenant of being there for each other. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine your marriage as one where you never have to seek after your own needs. If you have a need for affection, it's there. Your spouse gives it to you. If you have a need for just small gifts every now and again, it's there. And your spouse gives it to you. If you have a need for these acts of service, 
people that do little things for you. There, your spouse gives it to you. You do not have to hound your spouse to give them to you. You do not have to drop obvious hints. Ladies, hints don't work, sorry. You don't have to drop hints to get your spouse to give it to you. But your spouse is there giving of themselves freely to you. And in return, your spouse never has to look after their own needs. Because you are always there. Giving of yourself, giving of your time, giving of your service, giving of gifts, giving words of encouragement. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? That you never have to look after for your own self to meet those needs. I think one reason why our marriages are so much on the rocks these days is because we are raised in a culture that we are always supposed to look after number one. We're always supposed to look after ourselves and we have to make sure our needs are provided for. And if you want something, you have to go out and you have to get it. You have to be sometimes aggressive about it. And that's the way we are, are raised up in our commercialized, materialistic culture. And oftentimes we bring that sinful attitude into our marriages. But God had this marriage, this wedding set up to where it was a wedding where you look after each other's welfare. You don't have to fight for your own, but your own is freely given to you by the other. And I think of that. When I experience that, my wife gives herself freely to me just takes so much out of fights, of aggression, because it's all given. We're making ourselves vulnerable. We're giving of ourselves to each other. And what we see this is, is it really is a picture of who God is. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of God. Whenever God looked on a fallen world and says, well, we have to go down there and, and fix this, it's not like Jesus drew the shortest straw. But Jesus said, I'll go. I'll, I'll, I'll submit to you, Father. I'll die for them. When Jesus came on the earth, he got the words of affirmation from his Father when his Father looked down on him and said, this is my Son of whom I'm well pleased. And he gave to his Son. This Holy Spirit was upon him. The picture of our God in Trinity is a picture of how our Wives in a marriage is supposed to work. The father never has to stand up on his throne and say, all right, God, guys, it's time for y'all to glorify me. God doesn't have to do that because the son and the spirit is there already glorifying the father. Jesus Christ never has to stand up and say, all right, father, spirit, glorify me, lift me up. He doesn't have to do that. Father and the Spirit are already doing that. Glorifying their name. <coughs> Same with the Spirit. The Father and the Son are there for the Spirit. And that's the beauty of our Godhead. That's the beauty of the Trinity. Is that they are in this dance of self-giving love. And it pours over into us and we reap the benefits of it. And we are giving God 
And God gives of himself selflessly to us. And it works that way with your children. Where if you are giving to your wife and your wife is giving to you, and there's a self-giving love between you, that self-giving love pours out onto your family. And they get to experience that self-giving love. And they see how God is and what God is about and how marriages are supposed to work. That's the beauty of what God has given us. So regardless of your situation today, whether you're married or whether you're single, regardless of your situation, whether, whether your marriage is a happy one or whether you're struggling right now, regardless of your situation, this is a question you have to ask yourself. Is my life picture of God. Is my life a picture of God? That's what God created everything for. The heavens declare the glories of God and so does your marriage. The glory of marriage is the glory of Christ. Because Christ found us alone in our sins. And Christ said it is not good that man be alone. So he brought us his son. And the son looked on our ragged clothes and he clothed us in a white wedding gown of righteousness. And he made a vow to never leave us, to never forsake us, to lay down his life for us, to provide for us. What our marriages are designed to portray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, our groom. And Lord, we do look forward to the day when he comes to take us home. His bride, to that place that he has prepared for us, provided us with. But Lord, until that day, it is my prayer that with every ounce of our life, every ounce of our time and our singleness and our marriage, that we let our lives be a picture of who you are and what you are about. We pray for the grace to do this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, we'll stand with us. Let's sing together. We're just going to sing this song as a, a call to action. It says, be here, be now. Take hold of the truth that we've just heard and be people of love. So let's sing out together. Oh
send us out. God, help us to focus on uh, the call that you've given to us. God, to be men and women who love you, love each other, and love this world well. God, um, Lord, we just pray that you will help us to obey you, God, and to trust in your word to sustain us. In your name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. You're dismissed.